Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. In this episode of Psych Matters, we have Professor Rob Kaplan speaking about the fascinating history of psychiatry. Professor Kaplan is a forensic psychiatrist, lecturer and speaker with positions at the University of New South Wales, Western Sydney University and Wollongong University. His fields of expertise are sleep and pain disorders, neuropsychiatry and psychological aspects of physical disorders. He also holds the distinguished position of the chair of the RANZCP's Binational Section of Philosophy and the Humanities in Psychiatry. With the 60s, psychiatry had good reason to feel positive about its achievements. The decade of psychopharmacology, known to some as the psychopharmacology revolution, had produced treatments for mania, psychosis, depression, and anxiety disorders. For the first time, patients admitted to a psychiatric hospital could expect treatment and then be discharged after a relatively short time. Of course, the expectation was that they would then be cared for by the community services, but this, as events were to show, was something that never quite worked out the same way. The other thing that occurred in the 60s was the start of what was known as the anti-psychiatry movement. This came for up for various reasons. Many people over the years, if not the decades, were extremely hostile to the way patients were treated in what were then known as asylums or psychiatric hospitals. In fact, since its inception, psychiatry had always attracted strong criticism and resistance. The second thing was the start of what can be called the 60s, the counterculture revolution, the anti-establishment trends that swept the younger population, notably in America. All of these factors played a significant role in the movement. But the leading figure of the movement is the one to discuss, R.D. Lang. Ronnie Lang, as he was always known, was a brilliant, articulate and charismatic psychiatrist, a prolific writer of books and articles, and an excellent promoter, at least initially, of his cause. So famous did he become that many regarded him as the equal of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Ronnie Lang came from Glasgow in Scotland. He was an only child with a distinctly strange mother. From an early age, it was evident that he was highly intelligent. He originally planned to go into music, but instead switched to psychiatry. When he finished his medical training, he was conscripted into the army and put into a psychiatric ward. And here he was quite horrified by the conditions he saw, the way patients were treated, kept in secluded rooms, and given what he considered, and many others, horrifying treatment like unmodified ECT and freehand lobotomy. By this stage, Lang already had an interest in existential philosophy. 
And this prompted him to publish his first book, The Divided Self, in 1961. The Divided Self was just at the right time. The counterculture was waiting for a book like this. It sold, went into multiple editions, different languages, and I believe it may still well be in print. What was Lang's idea? The psychiatric patient, he said, is lonely because they are misunderstood. Psychosis, in fact, is a creative experience, but the way it was dealt with only led to alienation. How did this arise? It was caused by the dysfunctional middle class or bourgeois family. And in this regard, Lang was, of course, following down a well-beaten path by the analysts. Going back to even the early days of Freud, but more recently promoted by American analysts who believed you could treat schizophrenia with psychoanalysis. Prominent among them were John Rosen, Frieda from Reichmann, who coined the term the schizophrenogenic mother, and Theodore Litz. Lang had no doubt that the nuclear family was a toxic cauldron that cooked the schizophrenic personality. Psychosis, in short, was a sane response to an insane world. And the way of dealing with it, by putting patients in psychiatric hospitals and using conventional treatment, made it worse, not better. Lang decided to become a psychoanalyst, and he went to the Tavistock Clinic in London to train. Listeners may recall that this is the same Tavistock Clinic that recently had its gender transition clinic closed. Lang continued to publish and promote his existential views. He was the kind of character who didn't fit in well to orthodoxy and hierarchy, and his supervisor, Charles Rycroft, certainly a leading British analyst, did not want to pass him so that he could get his accreditation. In the end, the Tavistock Committee agreed to allow this chiefly because of Lang's growing fame and public image. Lang now gathered around him a group of believers, including Aaron Esterson, David Cooper, Joseph Burke, Sid Briskin, Clancy Siegel, and Morton Schatzman. This was the first organisation that called itself anti-psychiatry. The term anti-psychiatry, in fact, came from David Cooper. Cooper was from Cape Town, South Africa. He was a committed Marxist, and as it happened, he was also manic-depressive. Cooper viewed everything through a Marxist lens, and therefore he saw psychiatry in Grumpsy-like fashion as something, as a hegemony that needed to be overthrown in a somewhat anarchistic fashion. It must be said that Lane and a number of the others were never entirely comfortable with being called anti-psychiatrists. Lane, for his part, accepted that there was something called schizophrenia. It was how it was dealt with that he was more concerned. And he certainly wasn't a Marxist. Lane became a celebrity. He travelled everywhere. He was invited to meetings he went to America where he was on a stage with people like Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary. 
And he even went to Paris, where he met the French superstars, intellectual superstars, like Michael Foucault and Jean-Paul Sartre. He continued to put out books and promote his work and became truly famous. The work of Lang and the anti-psychiatrists came to a head in what was known as the Kingsley Hall experiment. Kingsley Hall was set up in 1965 in a rather undistinguished building in the East End of London. Its only claim to fame had been that Gandhi once stayed there. What they set up was essentially a psychiatric commune with no boundaries between doctors and patients and no rules. It's said that over the five years it operated, both the patients and their doctors made a career out of schizophrenia. Of course, typical of the way Lang and the others operated, LSD, hallucinogens and marijuana was dished out in vast quantities. There were no boundaries between doctors and psychiatrists. This was strictly forbidden on the basis of Lane's principles. To do so would recreate the hierarchy and boundaries of the family. The result, as you can imagine, was chaos. The most famous patient at Kingsley Hall was Mary Barnes. Mary Barnes was a nurse who had had several previous psychotic episodes that were treated in hospital. When she came to Kingsley Hall, she was allowed to regress. This was consistent with Lang's theory that you had to go back literally, not just to the birth, but to the womb, and then rebuild from there without the strictures and damage caused by the family. So she was put in a cot in the basement. She wore nappies. She was constantly incontinent. She threw her feces at the walls or at anybody walking by and just lolled around. To help her, the psychiatrist Joseph Burke spent all his time with her, often 24 hours a day. All boundaries between the two vanished. He allowed her to suck his nipple, and sometimes when he got so furious with her, he smashed her in the face. It could not last, and significantly, Burke later recanted, saying to remove the doctor-patient boundaries, as he did, was quite untenable and actually dangerous. What happened to Barnes? She eventually left and she took up painting. And she became a celebrity. So there were exhibitions of her work. Well, art is something to be judged by the art critics. Uh, the average viewer may have had their doubts, and rightfully so, about the quality of her work. But she was a celebrity now, and it didn't matter. Of course, what was never discussed was the fact that she continued to have psychotic episodes and was hospitalised and took medication. So Kingsley Hall could not last. Sean Connery, who was going through a tough period in his career, became a patient of Lang's. He was put on LSD, which he didn't like, and went to Kingsley Hall, where he was simply horrified. He saw it as a barbaric and dangerous situation. By then, the whole thing was breaking down. The psychiatrists were all at each other's throats. The patients were out of control. And after two patients jumped off the roof, that was it. David Cooper became psychotic and went to Argentina and was committed. Lang then 
unwound. He'd already been going downhill and he became a serious alcoholic and his use of drugs was prolific. So from being a famous psychiatrist held in high regard, he became something of a celebrity clown. He still got asked to meetings, but he would do sing songs, recite poetry, and generally embarrass himself because he was the worst for wear. So his reputation steadily plummeted. Now, it's worth looking at Lang's personal life, bearing in mind that he said the nuclear family was a destructive institution causing psychiatric illness. Lang had 10 children to four different women, and his relationships, to put mildly, were beyond chaotic. One of his sons suicided. Later, his son Adrian, who wrote a very good biography, said his father could solve anyone else's problems, but not our own. His daughter commented how he was always going on about family life, but he created the worst possible family life for his children. So this puts Lang in a very bad light. He was a charismatic figure, but his callous and indifferent attitude to his own family make him a hypocrite, if not a charlatan. As his reputation was plummeting, Lang went further back. In fact, he went into the womb and joined those who saw birth trauma as the cause of all problems. But this was a field in which other people were well established and he was just another voice in the crowd. In the end, it was quite pathetic and you could truly say that the shrink had shrunk himself. Lang died at 62. Some were amazed that he even got that far while playing tennis and, for those who like this sort of thing, his last words were, Doctor, what fucking doctor? I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. So time passes, and more recently, as history does, Lang has been seen in a more positive light. He recognised the barriers between doctors, nurses and patients, insisting that they become not numbers, but real people who should be engaged with. This was derived straight from his existential approach. And you can see this all over in psychiatry. A very good example is in the journal Schizophrenia Bulletin that now has regular inclusion amongst the learned scientific articles of patient accounts of their disorder. So Lang gets credit for being an important figure in the deinstitutionalization movement. We will be talking about the problems, but that's not the issue here. Kathleen Jones, delivering the Maudsley Lecture, said... Lang had sent a serious message, despite all his faults, to psychiatry, namely that the patient's view was just as valid as that of the therapist, and therapists should always remember to listen and not just prescribe. Perhaps the best epitaph for Ronnie Lang came from Anthony Clare, who interviewed him on his television show, and you can download it, and also wrote about him in his book. 
psychiatry in dissent. He gave the best epitaph. Lang gave a voice to madness. And for that, he should be remembered. Lang was the ultimate medical charismatic. And the most famous anecdote about the way he operated is worth looking at. He was going through a psychiatric hospital with a bunch of doctors as a visitor, and they came upon a woman in a room who was naked and had been mute for some time. Before the doctors could explain anything about the situation, promptly stripped off his clothes till he was naked and sat down beside her. And after a while, she began to talk. So the doctors were amazed and said, how did you do it? To which he replied, what took you so long to figure it out? Now this is an example of pure charisma. But one shouldn't get too carried away by this. Can you imagine if this was routine practice nowadays, where we are far more conscious of boundaries, and whether anyone who would not have almost the unique charismatic appeal of Lang could really get away with it. Now the next person in the anti-psychiatry movement is definitely a French superstar, Michael Foucault. And if you delve into sociology, psychology, history of psychiatry, those kind of areas, anything to do with psychiatry, it is quite a surprise not to find a reference to Michael Foucault. That gives you an idea of how he dominates the field. Foucault was a French philosopher, and in 1961, the same year as Lang's Divided Self, his book Madness and Civilization came out. Foucault said that insanity had been part of the human experience forever, but madmen were an 18th, 19th century construct. Why? Because society was urbanizing, industrializing, there were huge growth in population, and malcontents had to be dealt with. So the focus was on the other and in this case, it was the psychiatric patient. In other words, what he said was psychiatric illness was a label for a convenient label, and psychiatric institutions, like other institutions, hospitals, prisons, schools, were in fact punitive places for society's control. Labelling theory wasn't new, but Foucault's influence in this regard was huge. What's the problem with Foucault? Well, it's worth noting that French philosophers, if you want to follow them, have moved a long way away from him. In other words, he's considered something of old hat. It's only in the Anglo world that he gets so much mileage. The real problem is if you move away from his pervasive ideology that all institutions are punitive, you look at the way in which he did his historical research. And that was extremely poor, riddled with errors and superficial judgments. So that's the story of Michael Foucault. Work really questionable, but massively influential still until today. The next person was Irving Goffman. Now, Goffman was a sociologist, and for several years at the end of the 50s, he did research at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Washington, D.C. 
The hospital was best known for keeping Ezra Pound when he was charged with treason after the war so that he did not have to face trial. This was a collusion between his psychiatrists and the literary establishment and certainly well worth a talk in its own right. But what Goffman found, and he was very much a hands-on researcher, was that the institutions, he decided, were run for the benefit of the staff, not the patients. By that, he meant that if you sat watched the action in a ward, the staff would decide where patients sat, where they didn't sit, where they went, for their convenience and to maintain their control. And he also observed that much of this came from what you would call lower-level staff. So Goffman expanded this idea, as most people like that did, to total institutions. And this covered asylums, prisons, monasteries, even the military. What he meant was these were large organisations with hierarchies, authority, and the individuals were stripped of their identity and independence. Asylums, his book, The Asylums, Essays on the Social Situation of Mental Patients and Other Inmates, also published in 1961, was a big seller. And it's worth stating that it was very popular with psychiatrists who agreed with much of what Goffman said. Looking back, it's easy to see that Goffman is looking at an era that was passing. You don't get it anymore. Namely, American psychiatric hospitals before the 60s. And they really were backwaters, massively overpacked, badly treated, and patients were little better than prisoners. So what Goffman said in many ways no longer applies, but he did raise people's awareness as to how, how the institution can be pathogenic, similar to what people like Russell Barton called institutional neurosis. Now we have Thomas Saz. Nobody can pronounce it or spell it, but it is S-Z-A-S-Z. Saz came from Hungary, and he escaped when the Russians invaded to suppress the revolution in 1956, going to America, where he trained as a psychiatrist. His experiences in Hungary affected his views for the rest of his life. Lang started off as a mainstream conventional psychiatrist and analyst. If you read the literature on psychiatric literature on pain, one of the first papers you will find is a very good paper, albeit on psychiatric principles, on the nature of chronic pain and how it's experienced. And again, in 1961, he writes his definitive book, The Myth of Mental Illness. Now, Sazer's view was, and stayed for the rest of his life, that there is no such thing as a psychiatric illness. Why? Because it exists in that formless entity, that non-organic, non-material entity, the mind. And he quoted how so-called psychiatric illnesses, like syphilis, epilepsy, and Tourette's, as soon as they were found to have an organic basis, they became, ipso facto, neurological illnesses treated by neurologists. So what Saz said is people behave in certain ways, and this can cause problems for them, the people around them, and society, but they do not have a psychiatric illness. And he went on to repeat this year after year in a very long life. So he was, for many, 
the epitome of the anti-psychiatry movement in the USA. He wrote more books, but they never said much different. At one stage, he joined up with the Scientologists, who of course had their own anti-psychiatry agenda, but that was not a marriage due to last very long. Saz was particularly incensed by the consequences of the McNaughton rule. In other words, that in essence, if someone had a psychiatric illness, that meant he did not know the nature of what he was doing or that he, what he was doing was wrong. They were to be found not guilty and detained in a psychiatric hospital. He achieved the most publicity about this when John Hinckley attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan. And this ran and ran for a while. Says kept repeating, mental illnesses are not real, there's no physical way of showing they exist, and on that basis, there's no basis for detaining people against their will. It's an interesting comparison between Lane and Saz. Saz was undoubtedly a right-wing libertarian figure, while Lane, whatever you thought of his views, was definitely on the left, and you could see the two views played against each other. So those were the leading anti-psychiatrists, and now the 60s was in full swing. The unintended consequence, starting from laying and going down, was that the ethos and views of the movement were adopted by the counterculture while getting further and further away from the mainstream, psychiatry, universities, all of that sort of thing, and therefore losing their influence for change despite the fact that they did create some positive things. You might say the most dramatic result of the absorption of anti-psychiatry into the counterculture was the movie One Flew Into the Cuckoo's Nest, which had a huge effect in turning people against hospitals, psychiatrists and ECT, to say nothing of psychosurgery. Yet by the time the movie showed... It was again looking at a psychiatry that was at least 20 years old and vanished. ECT was modified. Psychosurgery had diminished to very minimal operations done stereotactically with removal of tiny pieces of brain. And the whole approach to patients had changed. One thing came up that was to have a huge influence. It was a paper by a Stanford psychologist called David Rosenhan. The title was Being Sane in Insane Patients. What Rosenhan did was to get some subjects, I think they were all students, to go to psychiatric hospitals and say that they were hearing, having hallucinations where they would hear things like thud and very little else. This would get them admitted. They would then make notes on how they were treated, how little time they spent with a psychiatrist, and so on and so forth. This paper was gigantic. It was regarded as one of the greatest psychology papers of the 20th century, and its influence was significant. As we will talk about, it led to a similar pseudo-patient experience in Australia. Now, of course, psychiatrists did not take this lying down, and one of the people who challenged Rosenhan and challenged him very well was no less than Robert Spitzer, the man who was to set up DSM-3 and change the face of psychiatry forever. Spitzer said that what Rosenhan had done was not just pure 
poor science, but it was pseudoscience and had no standing whatsoever. He particularly focused on the fact that Rosenan kept playing sanity off against insanity. Well, these are social terms. Psychiatry really doesn't use them. We talk about psychosis and that sort of thing. So this set the field and had a big influence on Spitzer as well as American psychiatry and it was to come to a head in 1980 with the launching of the Rivers of Gold. What are the Rivers of Gold? This is the dsm 3 by the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, who made millions out of it and from that time, 82 years ago, have had a vested interest in keeping it going regardless of criticism for monetary reasons. These are interesting thoughts, especially now that we know that Rosenhan's experiment, or rather research project, was a complete fake, one of the great fakes of the century. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.